You're now tuning into the Top Rank Podcast. This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. And we're your hosts and also editors at Top Rank Magazine. So for any new listeners, our podcast profiles women of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging the world around them. We think of this show as a process-oriented research platform that is grounded in conversation. So ideally, working in collaboration with our guests and listeners, we hope to create a flexible knowledge production outlet that is exploratory rather than prescriptive or conclusive. We're recording today at Red Bull Arts New York, and we're super excited to welcome as our guests representatives from Research Generation. Research Generation is a nonprofit that enables young people with wealth and class privilege in the U.S. to work towards the equitable distribution of wealth, land, and power. In America, the wealthiest 1% of households own 40% of the country's wealth, and this is in fact the highest share in over 50 years. In addition, the top 1% of households own more wealth than the bottom 90% combined. Resource generation is particularly unique because its work focuses on redistribution rather than charity. Sitting here with us are Holly Fetter and Dominique Tan. Could you guys quickly introduce yourselves and just say a little about what you do? Brief is fine, but just we figured you could do a better job of saying hi than we could. Sure. My name is Dominique. I am just about to move from New York to Los Angeles to work for my family's company full-time. They're in aviation down there, and I participate with Resource Generation on their national campaign committee. And I'm Holly. I'm from California originally. Um, I've been in New York for the past couple years, and I'm a chapter leader here uh, with Resource Generation, and I'm about to go to business school. Cool. Wonderful. In New York or? No, at Harvard. So I'm oh, like really yeah, getting deep, deep, deep in it. Yeah, leaving sadly. Okay. Um, nice. well, we're glad that we caught you before you left. Um, well, shall we start? Then? Yeah, of course. Okay. I mean, we'd love to learn a bit more about the history of the organization and also what brought you two to this line of work. So I guess it's two questions in one, but however you want to start that. Yeah, so resource generation. Um, basically, as you said, a bunch of rich kids for the radical redistribution of, of wealth, land, and power. Um, RG first started, it was a group of mostly queer white women based in New England who were both involved in social justice spaces and philanthropic spaces um, and who were trying to kind of figure out, like, you know, was there a nexus between those two communities? So um, some of their working class um, fellow activists kind of called on them to figure out how they could actually use their wealth instead of trying to hide it to support social movements. Um, so the first kind of like RG, they basically built this like informal network. And the first thing that they did with it was this national conference called Making Money Make Change, which is an awesome like triple entendre. Um, and it's basically <laughs> like a conference where a bunch of people from around uh, the country kind of came together and, and figured out like, how do we use the wealth that we have to really like start to support um, and invest in grassroots social movements led by people most impacted by injustice. So from there, it's really built out into like a formal organization. It's a national um, entity that has chapters in different communities like New York, for example. Um, and it's basically really focused on on educating our members around um, particular skills, like how do you make a giving plan? How do you figure out how much money to give away? Um, how do you invest your money in a way that's aligned with your values? How do you move your money out of corporate banks? Um, something I'm still working on. Um, 
And we also are kind of uh, moving into a new phase with with resource generation of really getting involved in collective movements and collective power building to really like align ourselves with um, national movements and national organizers, which um, Dominique can can say a little bit more about as well. Yeah, just to kind of reiterate too, I mean, the organization has been around for 20 years. This is the 20th year anniversary. And so within that time frame, they've grown a lot in terms of their analysis and understanding of what classes, how it works to uphold systemic oppression. Um, for me personally, I'm uh, part of their uh, people of color base building efforts, and they've been really explicit the last few years in putting out the platform, acknowledging the intersection of how racial justice cannot um, or has to be center if you're going to address economic justice. They have also shifted to include people who are within the top 10%. So historically, it was focused on white inheritors that um, you know, may not have been earners. And for people like myself, it's the first generation of wealth. I'm actively seeing wealth accumulate over my lifetime. I'm still actively earning that wealth. And I have a role in shaping how that wealth uh, is passed down from generation to generation. Very articulate, guys. So mm -hmm. I guess like a good place to start since we have put a lot of big ideas out here is how do, does research generation itself define wealth and class privilege and also how and why do you focus on, on, on young people, of people in this certain age bracket? Yeah, so this was a tricky thing and part of our growth. We actually just finalized our definition of wealth this past year. And that definition is really important because it provides a lot of clarity for everyone involved. It it makes people who say, I don't have class privilege, actually be aware that they are they fall within the top 10%. It also clarifies for people who may just have class privilege but not access to wealth that they might hold only a, a half of that intersection of RG's target population. Um, and it makes it really easy for a staff and other uh, chapter leaders like ourselves to actually figure out who we're targeting and how we're going to cater to those folks. So just like the talking about the importance of the top 10% and then in terms of what the top 10% is, um, that's we're talking specifically about people who are 18 to 35. So if you're anywhere within the range of $50,000 or $200,000 in terms of personal income, you fall within our definition of our constituency. And this can change in a range because it depends on what area you live in in the United States. The cost of living varies. Um, yeah, and wealth can, you know, look a lot uh, like a lot more than income, as, as Dom said. Um, so a lot of our members come to RG. We know RG is a pretty inclusive place. Like we, we really um, include folks who come from a variety of different connections to wealth, um, including like inheriting money, having a high paid job, being involved in their family's philanthropy or foundation. Um, I, my kind of like guideline is like, if you think you might be wealthy or have class privilege, like you probably do. And RG is probably like a really good place for you. I was actually wondering if you could maybe take a step back because I'm super curious about how the both of you kind of arrived at this work. Like, how did you both get involved in the organization? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, yeah go okay. for it, Dom. <laughs> uh, so I joined RG almost four years ago. Uh, I was in the Bay Area at that time and had been involved with social justice for a really long time. I think stepping back a little bit growing up, I'm a first generation American. My parents um, grew up from Indonesia. I was quite literally living in two worlds where every summer I would spend in Indonesia and then in the 
during the school year, I would go to one of the top 10 like middle school, high schools in the entire nation. And I didn't, you know, realize until after graduating that, you know, Forbes or Business Insider were naming the high school that I had gone to. And at the same time, my family, my friends, people that we were part of our company were also undocumented. They were low income. And for a lot of them, we became the source of employment. We were, you know, there in terms of 0% loans if they needed help with education or down payment on a house or a car. And so being able to see kind of the polarization um, and balancing that, I didn't have any room to contextualize until I actually went to college and got a framework for understanding things on a systemic level and started doing organizing work. I got paid actually in the Bay Area to do housing organizing. And there was a, a moment for me when I think all nonprofits at the time in the entire country, when Black Lives Matter were asking about what people of color who are non-Black with privilege have a role and responsibility to do and engage in and organizing our own communities. That was when I uh, had a, a really hard moment of coming back to understanding that I have a family company that I could leverage and that I had a lot of class privilege that a lot of the folks that were uh, organizing with in, in the movement with me in the Bay Area didn't have access to. So I ended up in that situation. I've been kind of working through that with my family for three years now. And resource generation has been such a huge form of support in terms of all the individual like feelings kind of thing that comes in with internalization of accepting that you're part of this really privileged group that has so much power in this country. Um, and strategically, like, how do I actually think about financing? How do I have access to resources? So that's how I got involved. Uh, yeah. So my growing up, my dad was a um, Fortune 500 CEO um, and I had access to wealth um, in terms of investments that were made on my behalf when I was younger. So I first really like got involved in social movements when I went to college, kind of similar to Dom. Um, I got really politicized around my queer identity, got really involved in queer organizing, racial justice and economic justice sort of through that. Um, and I, at the time, was like, you know, really involved in activism on my campus and was really coming to terms with my whiteness and like was really leading from that place and like organizing other white people because it was something that I couldn't hide. Um, and it was also an, an identity for which I had role models. I knew of white people in the world who could be both white and supporting racial justice. Um, but with class, it was like not that story at all. Um, so I tried to, you know, hide like I, I drove an Audi A4, but like whatever, it's like used maybe like I had all these kind of narratives around it. Um, but it wasn't until I was a junior in college that um, Occupy Wall Street was happening. And so suddenly there was this like chasm of the 1% versus the 99%. And I was trying to figure out like where the fuck I fit into that. You know, I knew I was part of the 1% technically, but I really aligned with the 99%. Um, and it all kind of like came to a head at a particular rally in San Francisco one day where um, the, the organizers of the rally were pulling down this massive cardboard cutout of a CEO. And it was like a stereotype with like pinstripe suit, pot belly, like mustache, you know, Monopoly man. Um, and they were, everyone was invited to like literally put their hands on this thing and, and, and pull it down. I was like, oh fuck, like that's my dad. Um, he's not, he like doesn't dress like that. But generally like that was, you know, the symbol of my dad. Um, so it was kind of this like intense, yeah, emotional moment of like trying to figure out where, where I fit in. 
Um, so, you know, coming out of that, I like went home and frantically Googled um, rich kids social justice. And that was how I like, <laughs> seriously, and like, that's how I stumbled across RG. I, I found someone who had been profiled, um, who was part of the Occupy movement, who's a, now a mentor and, and role model of mine. Um, and in that, she had linked to resource generation. Um, so I started a, the first college chapter of RG on my campus um, and, have, and have been really, really engaged ever since. Wow, thank you both for sharing yeah, those stories. Thank yeah, you. super, super interesting. Just like to hear how you both got to this line of work. I mean, I think we're also curious to hear like why the focus on young people for resource generation, like strategically, if you guys could speak to to that. And and how you guys find those people. Yeah. Or how they find you, like how mm-hmm. or, or how you realize who they are. Outside of like, Google, yeah. rich kids. <laughs> rich kids. Social justice. Yeah, so young people, I think it's really important to contextualize where we are in the history, like you mentioned it in the very beginning, but within the next 30 years, it's going to be the largest wealth transfer from one generation to the other, three trillion with a T dollars, 30, 30 trillion dollars, you can edit that. (laughs) With a T, it's like, what the fuck, three, yeah, it's like many, many, many dollars. Um, in the entire history of the world uh, from one generation to the other. So it's like a really critical wow. time strategically to be organizing young people. Yeah, and in terms of like how we how we find folks, um, it's honestly, it's mostly like a lot of word, word of mouth. I think that's like the the biggest, you know, thing for us, we employ like an organizing model. So we're really thinking about how can we be in our communities, like talking about resource generation, talking about the benefits of getting involved. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of people, um, uh, do find out like through friends or family or, or people's partners will be like, yo, you're rich. Like you have to figure that out. Like go to RG. Um, and you know, I know for me, like when I was dating, I was just constantly like RG, RG, RG like, every date. Um, <laughs> or, you know, like when I go to parties, I'll just like listen for the little clues. Like where did they go to school? Where are they talking about traveling to? Like how much are they trying to seem like they're not wealthy? Like those are the kind of things where I'll be like, oh, like research generation. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a lot of word of mouth. And then the internet and social media are like a huge, huge part of it. Um, a lot of people do find us by Googling or reading articles or stumbling, stumbling across our amazing Instagram page. Which yeah, is, which is yeah. how we found you We'd, all. Yeah. We would yeah, like yeah. to strongly plug the Resource Generation Instagram page. <laughs> Very it has strong. an incredible combination of original always. memes and social justice content. Yes. Yes, so, yes. yes good plug. That's plug. It's all, At yeah, all Maria, Generation. Our, our amazing communications director. I also want to just say in terms of like how people find us, in, in addition to both of those things, both Holly and I were talking about how I, you know, there was a movement moment within Black Lives Matter and and Holly with Occupy Wall Street and those national movements of just awakening, um, calling into question your place in the world. Mm-hmm. So there were like probably a ton of Hollies just Googling social justice rich kid after the mm-hmm. elections. And that's actually when in the New York chapter, I think we did a 100 one-on-ones, which is our like kind of intake. Um in 100 days wow right after the elections wow. mm-hmm. yeah. so that's a real catalyst for the the group just going in, in new york in particular mm-hmm. or was it like nationally you saw this like surge of nationally it's nationally but like particularly in new york like we just saw so much energy and so many people who are like <clears throat> really coming to terms with the fact that they were really benefiting profiting off of um the administration's you know policies and that they had a lot to benefit financially from what was about to happen yeah, wow. That's definitely a lot. We have definitely discussed this a lot between us, so it's really interesting to hear mm-hmm. that articulated the way that you guys have. Um, and that's also a really 
that's also a shocking number, a shocking number, the 30 trillion. Like, I feel like it's really hard to think about generational economic change on a macro level like that, because it's, Mm -hmm. it's like finding those numbers. Like, it's really great that you guys are, are compiling that kind of data and making it available. Cause I don't think I could have ever found that stat out in my own way. So thank you also for that. But we also wanted to ask, um, well, there's two parts. Like first, how could you describe some examples of when, let's say that you do a one-on-one, you you find a person who's going to be a new resource generation member, and then you're fi- you're figuring out a way for them to work on redistributing their wealth. And like you had mentioned a few examples, like not using corporate ranks, um, setting up at, at charity plans. So if you could just go through maybe what some of those options are, like how members now are doing this, we were really curious about that. Yeah. I mean, I could talk a little bit about the programming and how the programming also helps individuals figure that out. So one of the longstanding pieces of resource generation is what we call praxis. And so after you do your one-on-one, usually we ask that you go to through a praxis. Praxis is where you put your values into practice with other folks who share an identity. So on top of being a person with wealth, are you a person of color? Are you Jewish? Are you white? And so folks that have a shared identity will have a an opportunity to be together for six months and then set goals together, use the RG curriculum to figure out questions, establish a framework for how you think about class, and then give a giving plan or figure out how do you invest your money or, you know, I'm going to have this really hard conversation with my parents about where our wealth comes from and do I have access to a trust fund? So it gets really down to the nitty gritty on an individual level. And we can talk a little bit more about my personal story, but I don't know if you wanted to also jump in, Holly, about. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's so many different ways to to engage in, in redistribution. And I think one of the things I love about resource generation is that there's such a wide range of the way people approach it. So, for example, there are people in our community who will inherit a bunch of money and just give it all away, like right away, either to nonprofit organizations or to individuals. Or I know of people who have purchased land and built like a house or a community center or something like that. And then there are others of us, myself in in this bucket, um, who sort of like have, you know, begrudgingly have money invested in the stock market and then use the the gains from that to then fund um, social justice organizing. So there's like a real kind of there's tension within the community and there's like um, creative tension and like uh, a lot of different approaches to doing this work that something that really energizes me. And I feel like I'm constantly learning um, a lot about different ways to to engage in redistribution because we don't really have like that many strong models for it. Yeah, that's just to say it's like it's not prescriptive at all. I think that resource generation has really good curriculum on how to give in terms of philanthropy and around family foundations. But but again, you know, res, uh, racial justice, folks who are earning their wealth, first generation, we're all actively as members actually trying to figure that out together. And Resource Generation is a place to come to community to grapple with those questions. So it isn't prescripti- prescriptive. Um, some of the ways that I have leveraged uh, my personal giving is on a donation level, have increased my giving 650% since I've joined RG um, three years ago, all aligned with social justice principles. So That's an amazing stat, by the way. Congrats. Mm, Thank you. 650%. Unless you're giving Jeez. like $1, then it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
it, 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 I mean, it was, it's been super helpful in terms of how to give, where to give. Um, I also manage my family's giving. So that's over another million dollars that I help organize that I have access to. There is informal giving going on because I'm part of uh, immigrant community and the type of money that we engage in is more relational and in more informal. And then there's the investments that Holly mentioned in terms of I, er, I inherited a mutual fund that my parents had put away for me when they thought that I was going to go to grad school. And then I became a 25 years old, and then I inherited it. And all of that is in social responsible investments. Um, still in the stock market, also trying to figure out how <laughs> to get that out. It's a process. It's, it's a, a process. process. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's to this point about social justice philanthropy, I came across that like term on, on your website. And I was just wondering if you guys could talk about what that means in relationship to the work that you all do. Um, and how is it different from traditional philanthropy? Um, yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I think social justice philanthropy is is definitely different than traditional philanthropy. And I used to work at a big foundation um, in, a, in a few key ways. I think um, primarily, like, we're really funding work that's led by uh, working class and, and poor uh, communities. Um, we're also really focused on eliminating the root causes of injustice um, rather than just sort of ameliorating the symptoms. Um, and uh, for us, that really looks like changing the systems that made us wealthy in the first place, which I think is like the key distinction that differs, that differentiates social justice philanthropy in the way that many RG members give from the way that the general populace or a lot of people who are seen as really key major philanthropists give. Um, and we're also, um, you know, giving social justice foundations in particular, which kind of like fall into the social justice philanthropy bucket, um, are transparent, inclusive, accessible, really trying to challenge the traditional culture of um, philanthropy as, as elite and accessible, opaque, um, things like that. I don't know, Dom, do you want to give like an example of, of like what it looks like to fund with social justice principles? Yeah. I mean, so I've, I've thought about this a little bit in terms of our corporate giving for the family business. So we have a review committee comprised of employees who live, we do place-based work where our where our headquarters are located and where our employees live. They're part of our decision-making process in terms of who the money goes to. We're trying to, in the second iteration of that, actually include community stakeholders that have been grantees for uh, two years or more to be part of the decision-making process. So that's a really key piece in terms of where power is hold is who makes the decisions about who gets money. And North Star Fund is one of the social justice foundations here in New York. And if everyone, anyone wants to get involved in that, they can check out North Star Fund's website. Nice I, actually <laughs> I actually modeled our corporate giving um, off of their social justice committee. North yeah, Star Fund. I mean, I'd, like, I'm learning a lot right now because <laughs> I also think of philanthropy as, as opaque and elite. <laughs> but so that's really good to know. Um, well, I'm trying to think what the best order. I mean, I have a couple like off the record questions, which I don't I feel like we have time for maybe to add one. Yeah. Okay, sure. cool. Um, so I guess I have a little more like sociological question. Mm. When you um, are are sort of like speaking to people who are going to become members of RG who have, you know, wealth or class privilege, how do you deal with like an ultra American kind of like Puritan narrative about privilege being a, a result of, of a meritocracy, because I feel like that was something that I experienced a lot attending an Ivy League school where there was really a belief that 
social privilege was something that was absolutely justified and that it had been worked for and earned based on, on an inherent superiority of some kind. And I would be really curious to know how you deal with that narrative. Yeah, I mean, this is so true, too, because my parents had immigrated here and, you know, they had actually achieved the American dream. And it's particularly for Asian Americans in the U.S., that's a narrative that we're told and we're always being used as a wedge to say, hey, people of color, Asian Americans have done it. You can do it, too, if you work hard enough. And I think that what RG has been able to do is actually have a really sophisticated and nuanced analysis to understanding that by looking at your own family story and understanding what what kind of political policies have been put in place to help you. And I have learned that, you know, we're Chinese Indonesian. So the fact that we are of that ethnicity, we played a very particular role in um, the, at that time, Dutch East Indies when we were a former colony of um, our sovereign nation. And, uh, and we had been placed in the role of merchants and that gave us a lot of social capital that didn't just go away all of a sudden, and after colonialism had ended and they brought with them the social capital to be able to build. My parents had also luckily been able to get naturalized because our, uh, they were given an opportunity to work that, that that workplace sponsored them. A lot of people in our community didn't have access to that. Um, we got a small amount of seed funding that projected my parents to be able to establish a small business. At that same time, uh, Boeing and other big companies had an initiative or requirement from the federal government that they needed to contract out to X number of minority and or women-owned businesses. So, I mean, there's like so many layers of support. And if you look hard enough and if you actually ask the hard questions, and this happened over time, right? Like I didn't just all of a sudden understand the role that that Asian Americans play in continuing to uphold our uh, racial injustice and economic injustice. Um, but I think just being able to be persistent, if you look in the right places, ask the right questions, have a support supportive community that's willing to be there with you, that, that meritocracy um, myth really is, will disappear. Yeah, that's great. I think for me, um, in the communities that I'm really focused on, which is largely like white, wealthy people, there are certainly a lot of people who are really, really committed to a sense of meritocracy. And the truth is, for me in my organizing, I don't even really try and like get those folks sometimes. Um, I really focus a lot more on what I find to be the majority of people that I encounter these days, which are people who are really having a hunch that like something's really not right. Like it's really genuinely not fair that there's such excessive wealth um, going to the top 10 and 1%. Um, and I think, yeah, just the way that income inequality is is just absolutely skyrocketing. And there's just this deep, deep um, sort of divide uh, on a class basis. Like there's just more and more people that, that really like come out of the woodwork and will like message me or kind of try and talk to me about like, hey, like what what is going on? Like what is how can I do something? Um, so, yeah, I've, I've found that, yeah, there are folks who are open to this conversation. 
I mean, as an organization, like what are some of the key like challenges that you've faced? Um, I'm sure I'm certain you you both can speak to like the, the, the amount of time that you all have been a part of the organization. But I'm just curious, I guess, in the sort of line of thought about uh, potential resistance, about, you know, the sort of political framework that you all are coming from. Yeah. What are some challenges, criticisms, resistance? I mean, Holly, you said you you kind of choose a, a strategically the type of people that you're going to talk to, which is like really smart and like the way to go. But like what's like are there any points of like fissure or tension? There are a lot. <laughs> I think, of course, <laughs> I think no organization is perfect and. RG is doing some really groundbreaking and pioneering work in being able to talk about class and wealth. And those issues in themselves are very triggering for a lot of people. Um, and it's only natural to expect that as we're trying to figure this out, it's going to be really fucking messy. Um, so RG's learned a lot, though, and I think that one of the areas, uh, specifically as a person of color, has been when I first started um, in RG, I didn't really think it was an inclusive space. Most of the folks had been white inheritors, and um, I didn't really feel like even the curriculum around Praxis really reflected my story. I still could not see myself in how they were talking about or what their framework was around class, but to RG's credit, they have been able to persist with me. They've like taken into consideration all of the suggestions that I put in place. They have, I don't know, they, they have a, a queer woman of color who is their executive director. And it's a lot of institutional change. And they put out a platform that states the priority around addressing racial justice in, in this intersection with economic justice. So I think it's just an evolving um, process. And as long as you're willing to stick with it and be in the messiness, there is a place for you in RG. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'll highlight kind of two two things. One, um, there are definitely folks who come to RG and, and are turned off by how how sort of like far left the analysis is. You know, our, our mission statement is to um, redistribute, uh, to work toward a more equitable distribution of land, wealth, and power. Um, and some people get really, really turned off and scared by that. Um, you know, and I, I, I think we do a really good job of trying to like make room for people and say like, Hey, this is actually just like a vision. Um, you don't have to be there yet. Like, let's figure it out. Let's like think what that could look like and let's imagine it. Um, I think the other piece that's challenging and, um, in terms of organizing rich people is like, th that's not really an exciting identity to be organized around. A lot of the mo most like powerful social movements have been organized around identities that feel like, um, there's a sense of solidarity or there's a sense of resistance or resilience. And like, being like, yeah, we're all rich. Like, that's just a downer and like no one wants to engage around that. And there's some real dangers. Like the Trump administration is like rich people who organized around their values. Um, so I think that's that's like a piece that, that feels like really that's always felt like challenging and really intriguing to me is like, how do you build real collective power and like, really like wield our power um, as a generation of young people with access to wealth without doing it in like a really fucked up or sinister or like depressing way? And, and I think that that's why it's important for us as young people with wealth to figure it out 
together and also build in mechanisms for accountability. So that's why we have a staff that's cross-class. That's why our board is cross-class. That's why when we do campaigns, we're accountable to grassroots organizations on our on the local level and in the national level. So at every single step, we're really also intentional about including and also centering the voices of folks who are going to be the ones, you know, in a cross-class relationship and willing to help us um, figure this out together. Cool. I mean, it seems like Something that's really intriguing to me about the way that you're discussing this is that it seems that you're approaching all of these obviously intersecting categories with a f- framework of like intensely complex subjectivity. And I th- I mean, that's something that we try to foreground actually in this podcast in general. And I mean, I didn't know that that would be a theme in this show as well. But I think that if we, you know, that we do need to step away a little bit from these like holistic categories of identity and actually like look on a granular level as to like why people occupy the places in, in society that they do, whether that is a place of being disenfranchised or of being privileged. So I, I really encourage anyone listening to this show to read more about your curriculum because I definitely am going to. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I guess like one of our, I mean, I guess the 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 last question to wrap up um, would will just be what are I mean you've spoken to this a little bit but what are your plans moving forward as an organization I mean it seems like I read online also as I was preparing for this episode that you guys have made a lot of structural changes in the past year and a half also like in the post Trump world of um, adjusting to the times that we're in and I'm really curious to know what is, is coming next. Um, I mean, I think one piece for us, um, speaking of the like Trump era, is just growing our numbers. Like there's just so many rich people. Um, We know a lot of them. Like we all went to school with them. They're out there. Um, And yeah, I think for us, it's just like a big priority is um, really engaging more people, giving more people the kind of skills and tools to to align their values with their resources um, and to just like shift the narrative about about rich kids, what we care about, who we are, what we believe in, what our values are. We're not all just like material sort of self-involved people. Um, so that's that's one piece of it. Yeah, and I think the other piece is around growing from doing individual work, which is great, figuring out how you're going to give. And also, we need to figure out how to do that collectively to make collective impact and action. So we actually have are working on a labor campaign that we'll be launching pretty shortly. And stay tuned. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thanks so much to both of you, to Dominique Tan and Holly Fetter from Research Generation for joining us on the Top Rank podcast this evening. It was really so amazing to learn more about the the organization and also thank you so much for sharing you know your own stories and connection to uh, not only this organization but the work that you're doing more Bali so thank you so much yeah you can find out more about resource generation of course on Instagram which is how we yes. <laughs> we, we encounter them <laughs> at resource generation if, if I mean I guess people can also just google you yeah to find yeah. out find yeah. out more about you are but- your curriculums available online yeah, some of our context is, is definitely um, online. We have an awesome blog, or sexy. Um, yeah. yeah, and then uh, we also have, like I, I mentioned, this conference, Making Money, Make Change, um, that's coming up in October this year in a state yeah. in Minneapolis in the Midwest. Um, so definitely, if like this is remotely intriguing to you, consider going to that because that's kind of like that was one of my first entry entry points to the organization. It's a really special experience. And if you want to do this on your own first, you're not sure if you want to meet other rich kids yet, 
they have a very extensive library. You can buy as many books on class privilege, on Mm -hmm. how to create a giving plan. You can also find, you know, financial advisors who align with a resource generation values. I just check out their resource library on their website. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. Is Marcel. (laughs) And Isabel. Yeah, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, you know. Instagram. Anywhere. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Thank Thank you so much. Thank you also to Sienna and Hassan Mm -hmm. and to Top Rank and to Red Bull for hosting us here tonight. All right. Bye. Bye.